Autoimmune conditions are complex disease states where inflammatory and immune dysregulation overwhelm numerous regulatory systems. Their development and severity are often influenced by a legion of factors including genetics, immune dysregulation and infections, intestinal hyperpermeability, dysbiosis and toxicity, nutritional deficiencies and stress. Bioceuticals is proud to present the Reprogramming Autoimmunity Seminar Series in November 2016. The aim of this seminar is to delve deep into the known imbalances seen in autoimmune diseases and to learn the modern integrative treatments which can improve the health of patients suffering autoimmune-related illness. You will leave this seminar confident in assessing the complex imbalances seen in various autoimmune disorders, prescribing safe herbal and nutritional medicines to combat immune imbalances, and recommending effective nutritional and lifestyle interventions for the management of autoimmune disease symptoms. Your presenter, Belinda Reynolds, is a dietitian and senior educator for Bioceuticals who has shared her wealth of knowledge across Australia and New Zealand. Join Belinda at this half-day seminar throughout November 2016 to learn more about the evidence-based approaches for rebalancing immune dysregulation and how to enable your patients to enjoy a more fruitful life. Register now for this important education event at bioceuticals.com.au slash education slash events. This is FX Medicine and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today from sunny, I hope, Tucson in the United States of America is Dr. Lise Alshaw, one of my favourite people in the world. You're a naturopathic doctor with board certification in naturopathic oncology and who's been practising since 1994. She maintains a naturopathic oncology practice out of naturopathic specialists practising in Scottsdale, Arizona. Dr. Alshaw works as an independent consultant in the area of practitioner and consumer health education. The American Association of Naturopathic Physicians recognised her in 2014 as Physician of the Year. Lees also received an honorary degree from the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine and the Joseph Pizzorno Founders Award from Bastyr University in the same year. She's the current president of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, that's OncAMP, and you can learn more at drlees.net.au. Lees is the director of TAP Integrative, a non-profit educational resource for integrative practitioners. She's the co-author, along with Carolyn Gazella, of the seminal book called The Definitive Guide to Cancer and The Definitive Guide to Thriving After Cancer for Patients. And the definitive guide for cancer, I must say, is a text which anyone who wants to care for, anybody who has been touched by cancer, then they must get this book. It is just a seminal text. And Lee's also co-authored the 5tothriveplan.com and co-hosts a radio show, 5 to Thrive Live, on the Cancer Support Network about living more healthily in the face of cancer. And I warmly, warmly welcome you back, Lee's. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Always nice to chat with you. And just one little 
minor correction, although I'd love for it to be drlease.net.au. I'm not yet a oh, resident of the farming country of Australia, did, so no AU on the end of there. <laughs> sorry, drlease.net. That's right. <laughs> You're an honorary Australian. <laughs> We're working on the accent. I like it. Lise, today we're going to be talking about a really important compound called L-theanine and its many uses. Indeed, to me, it's been pigeonholed rather largely. Um, We tend to sort of categorise these compounds for one use and it tends to get a hero effect for that. But L-theanine, it's got such a broad acting, such a broad action But I think first we have to start off with what actually is L-theanine and how is it synthesized? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I am so excited to be talking about L-theanine because I would say it's one of my go-tos in my clinical practice for lots of different things, which I know we're going to be talking about, you know, easily on my short list of top 10. And um, yeah, L-theanine came to our attention relatively recently on the grand scale of things, it was discovered as a constituent of green tea in 1949 by by a Japanese researcher and then was approved actually as a food additive in Japan in 1964. And most of the research on L-theanine has in fact been conducted in Japan. Um, It comes from the green tea plant. And as, as you and I were talking about before we started this podcast, the constituent, it's an amino acid, and it's um, found in green tea in fairly low percentages. One to two percent of dry green tea leaves have L-theanine, but particularly if that tea plant has grown in the shade, apparently L-theanine will become catechins, which in the sun, and the catechins are what we often associate with green tea. The catechins are those sort of antioxidant powerhouses. Yeah. Um, but if we want more L-theanine from a green tea plant, then we would look for a shade variety. Um, and of course, uh, the, because the concentration is so low in the tea plant, there's quite a number of extracts available. Yeah, that's right. And I think this is the critical thing. Like, it's certainly great to drink this. What was it called? Gaio Curo tea is the the tea that ha- contains the most mm, the L-theanine. Shade one, yep. The shaded tea. Um, I think it was called Shade Dew. Um, was the literal translation. But um, it's certainly health-giving to drink green tea in any form, um, and that's the one that contains the L-theanine. But the research is done on dosage of the extract. Um, so we've got to be mindful that you right. can't get these you know, physiological or, dare I say the word, pharmacological effects um, by drinking just tea. So let's go into some of these uses. Um, I guess the the biggest one is, you know, you relax with a nice cup of tea. And I think that's where L-theanine mm-hmm. is most famous for. Let's, let's talk about this. What's its most famous use? Yeah, so really it is, it's well known to, to, to be an anti-anxiety uh, compound. And it has a couple of unique actions, if you will. Um, one is that it, it alters the brain wave activity so that you your brain produces more intense alpha waves. Alpha waves are um, the characteristic activity pattern of a brain that's relaxed but yet alert. So very much like a person who meditates feels after they meditate, um, that would be opposed say, to the beta waves, which are really, you know, over-agitated, highly excited. Um, so it kind of creates this this alertness. It doesn't sedate the brain, um, but it, at the same time, it relaxes the brain, which is perfect, really, <laughs> for somebody yeah. with anxiety. Yeah. Um, 
And it also is an amino acid. So as such, of course, it's going to influence neurotransmitters, uh, particularly increases GABA production and GABA receptor binding. And GABA, as we know, I think of GABA as, as kind of a light blanket that you throw over the brain. So it just kind of calms things down, uh, creates some nice uh, slowing effect, if you will. Yeah. And so the combination of those two, I think, mechanisms of action really generate this relaxation effect. And it's rarely pronounced. I mean, this has been demonstrated now in a variety of clinical trials. It's been shown in adolescent boys with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. 400 milligrams has reduced a lot of their anxiety and, in fact, as a result, helped them to sleep, even though it's not a sedative. Um, the anti-anxiety effect has been demonstrated in, in adult studies as well, you know, in a variety of situations, kind of a, as a one time you're about to take a big exam and you're really nervous type of situation, and also chronic generalized anxiety in both of those situations, uh, L-theanine can be quite effective. Yeah. And I think the thing is, um, we'll get into some of the other um, therapeutic uses of L-theanine, but they combine well because you can, you'll be using, there's always a component of anxiety in these um, uh, conditions that we'll be talking about its use in. So even if you're using it for the anti-anxiety issue, it's going to have this secondary benefit. That's the thing that I like about L-theanine. It's great. Mm. Right. Yeah, because I think, you know, like you said, we we tend to pigeonhole things into one indication. I mean, I myself was guilty of that, to be honest, with L-theanine for a long time. I just thought of it as something to help alleviate anxiety in my patients, and that's so prevalent that I kind of got used to doing it for that purpose. But as I started to do more research into it, I realized, wow, there's a lot more that this constituent does. And now, in fact, use it uh, for a variety of other things too, which I know we're going to talk about. Yeah. So let's talk about that research that you mentioned, like the the patented extract that most of the research is done on is sun theanine. It's by um, uh, Tao Company, I think it is, um, uh, in Japan. Yeah. But and, there... And- and actually, that if I could just interrupt you, that's really important because, you know, like um, most proteins, they have structure to them. And the sun theanine is the L-theanine enantiomer, which is positioned in a, a way that creates all these effects because most other L-theanine commercially available extracts are not L-theanine, they're D-theanine. Mm. And in the research, the D-theanine does not work, mm. does not have these same pharmacological actions. So if people are thinking, listening to this and thinking, gosh, I've used L-theanine and I haven't seen it do a thing, the first thing they should look at is, is what product they're using and yeah. to make sure that they're using the sun-theanine or the L-theanine. Product. Yeah, the L-theanine. Uh, you'll get some products out there and they're just called theanine, which could be a mixture of, you know, right. a, a racemic mitch or a mix of anything, LD, DL, whatever. Um, and there was, there's a lot of controversy on that. It was really interesting looking into the patent approval <laughs> on this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, there, but, but I do doff my hat to the Tao company and Sun Theanine particularly because they're the ones that have done the research for all of the other companies that are now going to spring from springboard from the usage of this. So, you know, you've really got to give homage, yeah. if you like, to that company for, doing, for putting up and, and doing that research. Right. Yep, I agree. I think there's also some some work on absorption. So it's important about absorption. It's not just, oh, it works better, quote unquote, but it's actually absorbed better. Is that right? I believe it is absorbed well. And 
the L-theanine, in fact, seems to be absorbed uh, so well that it does not require dosing with food. It can be dosed with meals, away from meals. Um, I know we'll talk about dosage at some point too, but um, you know, I think that's also quite important because, gosh, so many times we can learn about a substance that has been used in animal studies and then we don't see the results in humans. And oftentimes that's because we're using something that isn't the right thing or it doesn't get absorbed or we're not dosing it the right way. So all these, all these issues are important. Mm. Indeed, um, L-theanine is very well um, absorbed and readily crosses a blood-brain barrier, and that's why it can exert its effects quite quickly. So I've got to ask in your experience, how quickly does it work? Let's talk about anxiety first. Um, How quickly have you seen this compound work? Yeah, so, you know, the research is really clear and consistent on the fact that it takes about 30 to 40 minutes for the effect, which actually makes perfect sense if you think about the fact that it has to get into the intestines, absorbed, circulated into the brain, and accumulated in enough concentration to do its thing. So that's yeah. going to take some time. But really, 30 to 40 minutes is pretty quick. Absolutely. Um, and I think that, I've, yeah, and I, I've definitely seen that in my clinical practice. And the way I've seen that is um, it. Even though it's non-sedative, so it's not a hypnotic, not a sleep aid, I use it a lot for patients with insomnia. And the reason for that is because many, many patients with insomnia have anxiety, Mm, whether the anxiety caused the insomnia or they haven't had insomnia for so long, now they're totally an anxious wreck by the time they get to bed because they're so anxious about the fact they're not going to sleep. So what I tend to do is to use the L-theanine at bedtime tell them to start reading a book and really almost like clockwork within about half an hour, they start to get relaxed. They feel less anxious and then they're able to fall asleep. So I've definitely seen that uh, clinically in um, during the day because it's non sedative. You can also use that and see that clinical effect. Um, I've seen that in a couple of different ways. You know, people who have generalized day-to-day anxiety, taking it day-to-day, they'll see their levels of anxiety go down um, right away, but also in a sustained pattern because Mm. the effect, I think, is sustained. Um, And you can also use it situationally. So, for example, people who have, say, a phobia of flying, if they're about to get on a flight and, you know, as soon as they they start to board, which is usually about a 30-minute, well, depending on where you're flying, (laughs) 30 minutes before the flight takes off, I have them start taking L-theanine, and that usually calms them down as well. So, Mm. Um, yeah, that was a long-winded answer to say that definitely about 30 to 40 minutes. But it, it, you make some good points there. And, and I think the point about insomnia uh, being, if dare I say the word, comorbid with anxiety, it's kind of like f- um, fertility issues where if somebody's got a fertility issue, the anxiety of becoming pregnant can be so overwhelming that it actually creates or, or perpetuates the original issue. And that's exactly the same with insomnia where if you can't sleep, the frustration of not being able to get things sleep and the history of not sleeping well, the next night that anxiety creeps in again to create another insomniac night, and uh, another night of, of fitful sleep. So it's this self-perpetuating. Right. You take away the block and there are, they are, allow themselves to drift into sleep, which is how this right. compound and works. It, yeah, absolutely. And to kind of underscore this, it, it has a an onset of action in about 30 minutes, Mm. but the duration of action is, you know, eight to 10 hours. So 
you're going to get a long-lasting effect. So again, it's something that uh, should last in this example through the night. Although I have to say, in my again in my clinical practice, for people who wake up in the middle of the night and have trouble falling back asleep, I often suggest they redose at that point. Yep. And because of its uh, quick action, it helps them fall back asleep. Yeah, so you beautiful. Can use it that way too. Beautiful. So let's talk about some of the other issues and uh, some of the other um, actions of L-theanine. Um, this is something that caught my eye in this really quite a strange paper that I had. To, I actually stumbled on it. And this was its use in combination with chemotherapeutic agents. Yeah, this is something I've actually known about for a long time. And, you know, the, the caveat, of course, to this is that all of the research is based on um, rodent studies. Yeah. But that being said, we could presume that there's some translation into humans. What, what's so interesting about L-theanine is that it combines with, with what we call anti-tumor antibiotics. So, for example, doxorubicin or mm-hmm. epirubicin. And it, uh, when it's co-administered with those particular chemotherapeutics, it inhibits a mechanism that cancer cells use to eject chemotherapy drugs. It's a, it's a G glycoprotein or G receptor mechanism inhibits that so that the chemotherapy concentrates in the cancer cells. At the same time, because L-theanine does have some antioxidant effects in healthy or normal cells, it actually exerts some antioxidant activities and protects the healthy cells. So you get this really interesting effect where you accentuate the anti-tumor activity selectively in malignant cells which is pretty phenomenal. Mm. And again, because it's based on, at this point, rodent studies, you know, we have to put kind of a big sort of question mark around this, whether this, how much of this translates into humans. But on a risk-benefit ratio, there's essentially no harm, as we'll talk about, from l So in my view, why the heck not? Yeah. You know, let's use it, because not only are we going to help this chemo theoretically anyway, be more effective, we're also going to help deal with anxiety and as we'll get to a number of other issues too. Yeah. So the the two sort of um, tissues, if you like, or organs that it showed dramatic Im- improvement in protecting was mm-hmm. the heart and the liver. So, and and just right. for our listeners out there, with, with things like doxorubicin or adriamycin, um, there's a lifetime dose that people are allowed to have um, because it can be cardiotoxic. It's not except it's not one of the more common side effects, but it is a side effect that limits its prolonged use. So there's this dose limit limit that everybody has, and this can help protect against that cardiotoxicity and liver toxicity. But I've got to ask then, what about when you're talking about inhibiting the, the pumping out of the cell of a chemotherapeutic agent, have you ever seen any issues with toxicity of chemotherapeutics with L-theanine? Yeah, you know, you... you it's a fantastic question and um, something that I have not observed. And I think it's because even though it would be concentrating the chemo, you're not, it's apparently the antioxidant effects in healthy cells override that effect. Plus that particular proton or that particular protein that, that pump situation yep. isn't as active in healthy cells. So you really are getting a selective effect mm. on malignant cells. Lise, what about some other uses in non-cancerous situations? Well, gosh, there's so many. Um, one of one. Let's let's talk about a sort of a sister 
disease, which is cardiovascular disease, a lot of similarity, of course, with yep. cancer, but um, L-theanine uh, reduces blood pressure. And it seems to do that by increasing the production of nitric oxide, which is one of the most important vasodilators. So nitric oxide um, needs to, we need to produce a certain amount of it in order to relax our smooth muscles in our vessels. And um, this is this nitric oxide mechanism is really well known, I think, now among integrative practitioners. We for example, you know, we might use L-arginine for hypertension because it's a precursor to nitric oxide or citrulline. So L-theanine, I would put in that group because you're going to do, you know, give it yet another stimulus to more nitric oxide. And again, think about the relationship between anxiety and hypertension. We know that anxiety also yeah. contributes to high blood pressure. So you're getting kind of two mechanisms of action there. We've spoken about its action crossing the blood-brain barrier, but so what about having any antipsychotic actions? You know, I maybe you're aware of antipsychotic uh, actions that have been studied. I'm not aware of that. I know that it's you know certainly the anxiety, of course, is well known, um, and it does increase dopamine. It it um, influences serotonin levels in the brain. It increases GABA. So I suppose any condition that would have an imbalance of those neurotransmitters could be benefited. I don't know if you know of any other yeah, the one, indications the, along those lines. The one I remember was it was adding on L-theanine and pregnenolone to existing antipsychotic therapy in schizophrenic mm-hmm. patients to reduce reduce some um, anxiety symptoms. Um, and it was a very interesting study, not long enough, of course, not large enough, of course. Um, I think it was 40-odd patients, but um, it had a really good positive effect. So I think the, mm-hmm. the point here is that it's safe. You know, when you're talking about adding right. it on, um, it's, it's shown to be safe. Um, and that's the big thing. Right. So safe and, and efficacious. So that's the real issue there, I think, that we can take from that. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I think from memory that it was a typical claim at the end of the study saying, you know, further stu- studies are warranted. <laughs> you know that one? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I think um, speaking of the safety, there's uh, it's been studied in huge doses and there's really no toxicity that can be found with yeah. it, yeah. even though a lot of there's sort of just some general recommendations to limit dosing to 800 milligrams a day. But um, frankly, I... Uh, I have used 800 milligrams three, four times a day mm. and seen no, no ill effects. And sometimes that's the kind of dosing that's needed, at least initially, to, to move somebody to a different state of, of being or to affect a certain issue or condition. Mm. I'm just picturing in my mind for this next point, the question that I'm going to ask you, and that is when people drink a cup of tea and you sip on the cup of tea and you go, ah, and it just, the picture in my mind is a more relaxing one than when you do exactly the same, having a cup of coffee. And indeed, there's some research showing that L-theanine modulates that stimulating effect of caffeine intake. So can you talk to us about our caffeine drinkers here? That's me. (laughs) Yes, well, you know, it is. So it is a bit more relaxing. And green tea can, for some people, be very relaxing. I'm not sure. You know, it's hard for me, honestly, to understand or attribute that to the L-theanine because there's just such a small quantity. Yeah. Unless it's kind of a homeopathic type of, <laughs> or or hermetic type of dosing, but um, 
But, you know, it might just be the ritual of the tea or some other constituents or just the relatively low concentration of caffeine in green tea. Um, But that being said, there's actually, I think what's really interesting is there at least was one study where they looked at combining coffee or caffeine with L-theanine. And what they found when there was a combination is that you actually enhanced this ability to focus. Focus, So you... Because, you know, you think about L-theanine, that's creating that relaxed concentration or that relaxed state of mental alertness. Caffeine is very good at stimulating the cognitive aspects of our brain. So if you combine those, you might imagine that you're going to get, you know, kind of a powerhouse of a brain really ready to focus on problem solving and, and dealing with cognitively challenging issues. And that's, in fact, what this research found. So I think that, um, yes, in in Certain situations that people are, I don't know, when you'd use alpine to Uni counter caffeine, but I suppose. <laughs> Uni yeah, students. <laughs> Jacked up on caffeine, but they need reality, to be having alpine. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> right. They, then they can't get to bed. You could use it. But I, but I actually think actually taking some alpine with your caffeine, you're yes. going to get more of a stimulating edge from yeah. caffeine. Yeah, yeah, but but an improved way. focus with that rather than the ratty. I, I right. will always remember in my nursing days, um, stupidly, I took caffeine tablets when I was cramming for an exam um, and the exam was the next day. And what, what the humorous part of it is that I took the caffeine, went to the exam, and then we were notified that the teacher was sick and that the exam had been delayed <laughs> till two o'clock that day. So I went into town totally out, totally wired on caffeine with this thought of asking a question of somebody in a record store. And by the time I'd gotten to the record store, I'd forgotten what the question was. I should have had l <laughs> so that I was more focused. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I think the interesting point there is as well is that when you combine the two, as you say, it, it creates this stimulation to be alert, but a relaxation component to be focused rather than just wired out mm-hmm. of your mind sort of thing. And I think that's a really important right. yeah. action of L-theanine that we need to take away. So particularly things like uni, yeah. people like uni students, you know, and high school students, anybody studying, but also those people that might have to focus their attention to a, uh, you know, a, a detailed project. I think that's real key. So therefore, right. I'm going yeah. to ask, what about chemo brain? Yeah, you know, I... Um Interestingly, actually, in preparing for this podcast, that very thought occurred to me because I have not thought about particularly using L-theanine and caffeine for chemo brain, but I'm going to try it. Mm. I definitely have thought about using L-theanine and do use L-theanine, not just for chemo brain, but for various other peripheral neuropathies because it it helps to prevent uh, some neurotoxicity from extra glutamic acid, which can ah. accumulate in nerves and cause damage. And that is actually a known effect of many chemotherapeutics. So I've long used it to help address peripheral neuropathy, both from a preventive standpoint and also from a treatment standpoint. Um, but now, and as a result of that, I've been thinking, you know, I know it crosses a blood-brain barrier. It's probably helping in some way, but now I'm actually going to try mm. really very specifically recommending that people do it with the caffeine and see what happens. Um, Dr. Janet Schloss, uh, famous nutritionist, naturopath, 
shout out to Janet, um, based in Brisbane, Australia, mm-hmm. who did her PhD um, looking at B vitamins and how they might attenuate CIPN. That's the chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy. And she looked at um, what she found was a, a, a case where B12 was severely deficient in a, in a patient on paclitaxel. And by, if you like, as a rescue therapy, this lady, by the way, had neuropathy symptoms up to her hips and up to her elbows. So it's called the glove stocking Mm. syndrome. And um, they rescued this back down to her fingertips and her toes, I think it was, by the addition of intramuscular B12, so a high-dose intramuscular route there. But I wonder about if you could add L-theanine to help prevent this from happening. Certainly, I think Janet's Mm -hmm. work shows that we possibly should be screening people for their B12 levels. Um, But it's really interesting, Mm -hmm. this sort of action that L-theanine might have. Certainly safe. You know, this is the thing that gets me is how safe it is. Right. Mm. You know, and then I think the other thing we haven't talked about, but which I keep coming to in my mind because um, of its immune function, because especially in this ah. this vulnerable population, but but really any population, yeah. uh, green tea is pretty uh, well known to uh, stimulate a very particular T cell called the gamma delta T cell, and I happen to have a great fondness for the gamma delta T cell. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, this very unique T cell that has been um, shown to have a very very important role in protecting us against not only tumors, but infections. And uh, it's actually a relatively newly characterized T cell. And since it's been characterized, there's been quite a lot of research on it. And the more we research, the more we discover how important it is. And it's also true that a lot of individuals can have sub-functioning gamma delta T cells. So they don't really respond to the, the threats as well as they could. Their activity is low. And uh, L-theanine has been shown to increase the gamma-delta T-cell function because the the L-theanine supplies that particular kind of amino acid it is, is what those gamma-delta T-cells need for their activity. So it's literally like feeding your gamma-delta T-cells. And this has been shown to be effective in reducing cold and flu symptoms and uh, incidence. And I suspect uh, would have also some pretty important implications for people who are immunocompromised for whatever mm. reason. Mm. And it seems to work both across adaptive immunity and innate immunity. So it seems to be this great balancer of the um, immune response. Right. And that that's again, can be traced back to this really cool gamma delta T cell that, that does in fact stimulate, you know, when it responds, it, it basically acts as a big signal to the rest of the immune system, both um, adaptive and humoral to, to mount a response. So it's really critical. So yeah. Yeah. since learning this research, you know, this is yet another reason why uh, L-theanine is on my short list. Yes, absolutely. And for our listeners, I could attention you to a paper. You might be able to read the abstracts. I think it was a nature review, um, gamma, de- gamma Delta T-cells in Cancer. The author is Silva-Santos, initial B et al., and it was in Nature Reviews Immunology 2015. Look it up. Lise, what else can you tell us about green tea? What other actions are there? Well, let's see. Uh, we've talked about its anti-hypertension action, its anti-anxiety action, its neuroprotective action, its um, immunostimulatory action. 
Uh, what else is there? Oh, we've got it. We've got it covered. <laughs> we've got we? it covered. So certainly for use with a, not just doxorubicin, potentially other chemotherapeutic agents where you might run into issues with um, peripheral neuropathy. For uni students or, or anybody focusing on a complex task where they need to be alert, but they need to be focused. For those people that might have issues with anxiety and that might be able to, that might be stopping them from getting to sleep or indeed be affecting their behavior like ADHD or insomnia. Um, there's, so, there's so many broad actions on this. It seems to me, it's almost like a panacea. Yeah, I think that, and I guess maybe one thing we haven't really mentioned very much, but we, we talked about it a little bit, is um, you, you actually brought to my attention, we spoke early in this about how the shade-grown green tea, yep. the L-theanine doesn't convert into the catechins, which catechins are these you know major antioxidants, but L-theanine does retain some antioxidation, and um, that's another, I would say, indication for L-theanine because it has been shown to improve glutathione levels within cells and to, in a, in a sense, increase our defense or our antioxidative defenses against the very oxidative world in which we live, which, yeah. you know, if you think about this over time, that has implications for chronic disease prevention, for uh, reducing inflammation, and boy, inflammation underlies so much. So, you know, I suppose that's another... Uh, not a peg in the in the in the board for putting L-theanine as panacea for sure. Yeah, I, I think the other thing, the last thing, is that it actually tastes all right. <laughs> We've got an extemporaneous compound here in Australia. It tastes really nice. It's like a lemon flavored thing. It's lovely. Um, mm. So, Liz, I have to ask then, is there any untoward effects that you've encountered using L-theanine? I remember the first time I took L-theanine, sun-theanine. And I think I took two or three capsules. I think it was two capsules. Um, so 300 milligrams. And I noticed that I felt a little bit agitated on the first dose that I took. But the second dose, I didn't feel that agitation. Have you ever felt that? Now, that's a one-off. That's an N equals one, a personal story. It's certainly not a, mm -hmm. uh, you know, an observed effect for L-theanine that I've noted. Have you ever seen this in patients? Have you ever seen any weird yeah. effects? You know, I, I haven't. I haven't seen that. I have definitely had patients say that it, it's too sedating for them, which always kind of perplexes me, except I think the way I understand that is that, you know, some people's, are, some people's brains are very kind of hyper-excited. And I think that they get assimilated to that level of activity, those those particular brain waves, a lot of beta brain waves, and so that maybe when there's a a change in that, it is interpreted as being tired, and in that way, you know, some patients have said, "I don't want to take this," but that's the really, gosh, minority. Most patients yeah. um, notice pretty good benefit pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, some, I would say, you know, so let me put some percentages on this. I would say that I can reliably expect, um, 60 to 70% of the people that I give this to, to report back within, you know, 10 days that this is helping them. Yeah. And the other, you know, 20% might get benefit, but it's a little more subtle. And so that, you know, I, as a clinician have to, to do investigation and in, in how I question them to, to point out how they've changed. And then there's, you know, another 10% that just don't really seem to benefit or that maybe have this kind of uh, too much of a sedative effect. Um, but, but really what that says is this is, 
a very reliable clinical agent. Mm. And, um, and, you know, the dosages that I typically use are, I usually start at uh, 400 milligrams once or twice a day. Sometimes if somebody is very sensitive, I'll start lower. So I might start at 150 or 200 milligrams twice a day. I don't ever really go below 400 a day. Yeah. Um, and then if that 400 or let's say two to 400 is twice a day is not enough, I might even increase it to a third dose. Um, but generally that I'm kind of hitting it about right at between, you know, 200 to 400 twice a day. And the reality is, is that, as I said earlier, there's really no known side effects. So you're not, you don't have to worry about escalating the dosage. I think there's a bit of a biphasic curve to this that we don't know quite yet. Cause I don't think more is necessarily better. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a certain point at which you're not going to get more, more benefit. So, yeah, yeah. um, but yeah, and long-term use because of all its antioxidant and anti-anxiety and vasodilatory and all those effects, long-term use is totally fine. Mm. Um, so I have no issue with, with prescribing it long-term. I have no issue prescribing it to, to children, um, you know, particularly adolescents who are dealing with kind of hyperactivity issues. Yeah. I think it can be quite helpful. A lot of those those kids have a horrific time sleeping. And I think this can be quite, I've seen it be quite helpful for that. Yeah, that's right. And so, I, th- I think the thing is that it's not a sedative. We, we really have to drive that home. It allows people to get over the anxiety, to reduce the anxiety component, which is stopping them from sleeping. And this is where I question right. those people that say it's a sed- it, it has too much of a sedative effect. Because I've sort of had this mm-hmm. that, that um, response from some patients taking valerian. Valerian isn't really a sedative, sedative type herb, as in like it's not a soporific. Um, you might get that sort of effect from Mexican valerian, say, but not um, Valeriana officinalis. Um, however, if some people have had weeks and weeks of insomnia and then this sort of thing starts to act, I, saw, I, I remember this sort of response and they said, yeah, make me tired. I said, it's not, it doesn't really work that way. You're tired cause from not having weeks and weeks of sleep. Allow that to recover over right. the next two or three weeks and you'll start to get nice, regular, restful sleep. So maybe these people just right. had to give it a longer chance to work. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it also reminds me of when you have a chronically stressed individual that's hypercortisolemic and you give them an adaptogen or adaptogenic formula and they're first, they come in and they complain, what did you do to me? I'm exhausted. And that's because you're actually starting to normalize their stress response system, lower their cortisol levels, but all of the things that get upregulated under chronic stress, you know, take a while to change. Receptors, yeah. numbers change, activities change, cell behavior changes. So, yeah, I think you're you're making a really good point that that it's important, even though it does act quickly. That we don't we can't predict necessarily how people are going to interpret that response, and we need to give it time. Mm, how well, how worn out their bodies are. Thing. Yeah. Dr. Lee Zalschler, thank you so much for taking us through such an important compound and one that, you know, I really want to drive this point home, that it's safe. It's really, really safe. It's got eons of use, traditional use, in tea and in lower amounts. But, you know, since the 1960s odd, the research is just prolonging this effect that it's safe and that it's got many, many uses in both, you know, seemingly remedial but also quite severe um, conditions. It's just a compound that we really need to listen and look to. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. You know, there's just a, I love finding these. Very effective, very safe. 
uh, compounds. This is really what I think natural medicine is about, trying to find ways to support people's health without with doing minimal to no damage in the process. And I think this is a great tool for us in that regard, absolutely. This is Ethics Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast was proudly brought to you by the Bioceutical Seminar Series, Reprogramming Autoimmunity. FX Medicine is your gateway to news, resources and information on the safe, evidence-based approach to practising complementary and integrative medicine. Visit fxmedicine.com.au to sign up for e-news and stay up to date with the latest research, podcasts and industry information.